Great to be in Miami, the place where we have some of the best shiurim, Baruch Hashem. Uh, before I uh, forget, we had an amazing uh, shiur last night in Aventura. We had a last-minute change as far as the location, but Baruch Hashem, it was very good. Anyone that wants to watch it, go to uh, TorahAnytime.com or BeZadHashem.org. And uh, Baruch Hashem, they're publicizing our shurims, tens of thousands of people watching the shurim every day. And it's, uh, it's truly amazing how many people are being affected by it. Uh, also, refuah shlema to Doris Bat Jora, Michel Koto, Hadassah Bat Sarah, Amparo Balufe, Ruven Joseph Ben Rivka, Sara Bat Sarah, Gladys Nunez, Edilma Guerrero, Josefina Matos, Esperanza Avila, Ana Cedeno, Guillermo Solano, Jose Avila, Raquel Sandler, Lourdes Rensoli, Yoshua Mikael Ben Hadassah, David Uriel Ben Sara, Olga Flores, David Gamliel Ben Hadassah, Nicole Valmana, Augustine Hernandez, Jorge Hernandez, Isabel Betancourt, Betancourt, uh, Liliana Ante Bonilla, Gilberto Meneses. Meneses. Thank you very much. Bezat Hashem, HaKadosh Baruch Hu will give them refuah shlema, refuah ta-nefesh, and refuah ta-guf. So, the uh, last minute change from, uh, you know, last night's shiur has a little bit to do with what will continue the topic of last night and today's shiur, where right now we find ourselves in a uh, very interesting time. They call it the uh, Yemesh Shovavim. The times of Shovavim, the way that they get the uh, names is that it's the first letter of the name of the parasha for the next six parashot in the Torah. Still spells the name Shovavim. And Shovavim means like little rascals, like troublemakers. And there's a verse in the Torah where it says, Shuvah Shovavim, like Hashem is saying, come back to me, you little rascals, you little troublemakers. Meaning, Am Yisrael, stop being sinners, stop being a shayim, stop going against my Torah. Come back, come back home, I'm going to take care of you. I love you, I feed you, I take care of you, I give you parnasah, I give you zivug, I give you refuah shlema, I give you everything. Stop being troublemakers. All Hashem wants is for us to come back to Him. He gives us a box of 24 chocolates every day, and all He wants is to give Him a little bit. He says, I'll give you 24 chocolates. 24 brand new chocolates. Can I have one? It's one. If your son asked you, can I have one chocolate? You'd say, yeah, sure. Take two, take three, take five. If somebody gave you a present and said, here's 24 box, box of chocolates. Amazing, from Belgium, kosher. Can I have one? You have 24, right? Can you taste one? You'd give it to him, right? Hashem does the same thing to us every day. He gives us 24 hours. And He asks us for a little bit of time every day just to pay attention to Him. Pray to Him. Thank Him. Ask Him. Do something. Talk to Him. Obviously, we should do more than one hour, more than one chocolate, but if we're not doing anything, then it's very easy to understand why people like that are called kfuyetova, which means ungrateful. He give you 24 chocolates, you don't even give him one? That's a problem. Now, there's also a time where it's the Hilula of the Rambam. And the Rambam in Ilchot Shuvah 
says something extraordinary. He says, at the end of times, in the times of the Mashiach, the Torah promises us that all of Bnei Yisrael that are alive will do tshuva. So on one end, we're thinking, okay, so why are we working so hard right now? We're learning Torah at 9 o'clock at night. Let me go, watch TV, hang out, relax. I don't have to do anything. Rambam already said, it's halacha. I'm going to do tshuva, so I don't even have to do anything. Let me go hang out, whatever. Whenever Hashem puts the disc in my head, I'll do tshuva. What do I need to try for? What do I need to go to class for? What do I need to convert? What do I need to get more religious? What do I need to do a... Let me do the... Wedding that's not allowed, where the men and women are dancing together. And then when Hashem puts the disc in my head, like Rambam said, He puts the disc in my head, I'm going to do tshuva. If it's alakha, alakha means we got it from Mount Sinai. It doesn't change. It's not an opinion. It's not like this, I think this is going to happen. Meaning if this is alakha, that means this is, this is it. So what do we, this is what places like Chabad Places like Chabad that tell everybody you could, you know, come to shul knowing a guy's driving. Guy's driving to shul on Shabbat, but they say, come to shul. Why come to shul? The guy's Mechalel Shabbat. And they said, no, no, but we need him for Minyan. What Minyan? He doesn't count for the Minyan. Guy's Mechalel Shabbat, he's not counted for Minyan. He's not counted for Minyan. What, what, what are you, you asking him to drive on Shabbat? What are you, for what? What is he doing for you? No, we're trying to get him closer. By what? By giving him a death sentence in Shemaim? <laughs> How are you getting, getting him closer to the grave? What are you getting him closer to? What are you getting him closer to? He goes to shul and he gets Hashem angry on the way there. It's like somebody wants to propose to a wife and he says, Honey, before I propose to you, I just want to let you know I just cheated on you, and but I really love you. <laughs> what? Something wrong with you? What are you telling the guy to drive to shul on Shabbat for? No, no, but we don't say anything. Yes, but the guy's been driving to Shul for 15 years. By now you know. By now you know you're not allowed to drive on Shabbat. By now he knows. Obviously, if he thinks that you don't care, he doesn't care. Because you have the beard and the hat. You have the certification. And this is not just Chabad. And this is not all of Chabad. It's a lot of organizations, unfortunately. It's a lot of shuls. And a lot of places that, unfortunately, have leadership that's weak. Leadership that's not willing to look at the fine details of what the Rambam actually said. What the Rambam actually said is that everyone that stays alive will do tshuva. Key words is stays alive. Meaning, at the end of times, the times of Mashiach, Amen. The Rambam says we're going to see Similar things to what we saw in Mitzrayim. And one of the plagues that we're going to see is 15 days of darkness. 15 days of darkness. But not darkness like there's no light. Darkness like Egypt where we can't even move. Deafening darkness. And during that darkness, two-thirds of the world are going to die. During that darkness... Many of those people are going to be Jews. Jews that were born Jews. Their mother is Jewish. Father is Jewish. They went to Chabad with the car every Shabbat. All the Reshaim will be killed during this darkness. 
So what is the Rambam really saying? He says, if you stay alive, if you have the merit already by then to do tshuva, and you're walking to shul, and you're keeping kosher inside the house and outside the house, not just inside. Hashem is inside the house and outside the house. And you're wearing kisui loss as a married woman, inside the house and outside the house. Also to the wedding. Not just to, you know, it's very easy to be religious at home. At home, everyone's religious. At home, everybody has a candle with the, the Rabbi Meir Balanes, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. Everybody's religious. Outside, all of a sudden, everyone takes their clothes off. What happened? Hashem is inside and outside. Rambam is telling us, if you have the merit to survive, because you did full tshuva, Dalachah is relevant to you. You'll do tshuva, you'll be saved, you have olam haba. But if you're not, if you don't have the merit, this doesn't apply to you, my friend. The key is to look into the details of the words and not just say, no, no, everybody's going to do tshuva. Just the last two words. Everybody's going to do tshuva. Okay, but first few details change the significance of the sentence. And unfortunately, the last time something like this was said by anyone other than Rabbi Mizrahi or myself was over a decade ago by, in my opinion, the best Mezakeh Rabim Rabbi that I've ever known of. Rabbi Nisim Yagen, Zechet Sadiq Kadosh Libacha. And they recently made a uh, video, one of these movies, that they have like uh, special effects, you know, in the, um, with his voice, talking about the end of times, this, uh, um, and this huge organization that makes a lot of amazing movies, he, he speaks, it's uh, Hebrew, the whole thing, but it's 10 minutes. And on the way here, I listened to it three times. Even though I've already heard it, and I've heard Baruch Hashem many of his lectures, He's such a powerful speaker. I said, you know what? I need, I need to wake up myself. I need to do tshuva. On the way here, I need to do tshuva. Why? Because, that's what it says, Shavavim, it's time to do tshuva. Got to come back to Hashem. And I was thinking, why did I think about this? Because last night we went to a shul. We have a shul, Baruch Hashem, that's uh, supporting us and helping us do the shurim and Aventura, the Breslov Center, and uh, great shul, great place. And you know, they're very, very kind. They welcome people. And uh, unfortunately, sometimes, you know, you don't have time to like, you know, verify details of every single person you invite. So they invited this so-called rabbi to come to the shul and uh, before me, you know, like a couple hours before me. And he wanted to have like, he came from Israel to visit. And he's raising money, obviously. You don't come to America just to look at the toy stores. Um, so he came to visit to raise some money for whatever cause he has. It's fine. There's nothing. There's nothing wrong with that. It costs money to do all this. You know, we we haven't gotten to the level of getting man from Shemaim. That's in a few weeks. We have to leave Egypt first. We just got it to Egypt. But came to raise money, so to raise money takes time, takes effort, takes people, takes so on. So one of the things that people do is they have get-togethers with food and music and divret Torah and so on. So he was before me. They told him, listen, the shiur starts at 9 o'clock. It's every week for the last month, month and a half. And when I got there, I got there almost an hour early. 
And uh, I saw there's a bunch of people there. I saw, no, Baruch Hashem, very nice. And I'm setting up. And I'm taking my time because I have a lot of time. It's not a... Uh... And a few people know who I am. And they come say, hello. We talk a little bit. And I see that this is continuing to go on. It's getting closer and closer to 9 o'clock. You know, which by now, I'm assuming, okay, you should start, you know, taking back the food and throwing the garbage. So I could, you know, my people are coming. If you want to join us, join us. But point is, it's time to go. But it's... 8.45, 8.50, and I see more food coming. Oof. More food coming, and the music getting louder. And this party. <laughs> the music is getting louder, and there's more food. So I said, okay, this is going to take a little longer. Okay, so I mean, look, you know, let's stay cool. It's fine, even though, you know, when you're giving a lecture, you have to be focused. You have to think about Hashem. You have to think about, you know, what you're going to say, because it's not a prepared speech. We're not Obama. We learn, we come to the shiur, we say what Hashem gives us in our mouth to say. So I'm waiting, I'm waiting, it's 9 o'clock. Okay, 9 o'clock, this is the time. No one's moving, what's happening? More food's coming out. I've never seen so much food in my life. Weddings don't have this much food. Food, 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 and the music, and they're all, you know, they're banging on the thing, and they're making music. And it's, you know, if it was just purely a party, and I didn't have a shiur to it's much, it's fun. Yeah. But I don't come for parties. I come to save lives. People that are on one-way ticket to Gainom, we try to change that to Gan Eden. Takes a lot of work. Yes. If I give them schnitzel, it's not going to get them to Gan Eden. If I turn the music on really, really loud, it's not going to get them to Gan Eden. It's going to get them to Gainom even faster. So I'm sitting there and I'm waiting. And it's nine, and I'm not saying anything yet. 9.10, I'm thinking, okay, this guy is, you know, he's a rabbi, I don't know, black and white, he said, I don't know, a couple of stories to them, that were entertaining, he knows Torah, he knows Midot, he knows he has to have character traits, and you know what, aside from me, he has to have just, he knows I'm here, he's been watching me set up for an hour, 9.15, I see nothing's happening, I ask one of the guys, I'm like, oh no, how much time? Like people are already here, already waiting. It's not nice. So everybody's looking at me like like I just came from a, a different planet. So I go to the guy himself, and why? And he's in the back in the kitchen. And as I go into the back, he's taking out two giant pans of chicken and steak. More food. I don't. How much do these people eat? I've never seen people eat so much in my life. And he's taking them out from the thing. And I'm like, what is this? I'm like, I was sure. He goes, yeah, what time does it start? I'm like, 15 minutes ago. 15 minutes ago it started. He goes, oh, yeah, they told us like 9 o'clock. Okay, so, you know, it's, it's going to be a while, a while. I'm like, what a little while. With the way it looks, with all the sticks, it's going to take at least an hour. And he just ignored me and just walked away. Like as if I wasn't there. Pretty much he showed me, I have two choices. I can either argue with him which caused Chilul Hashem, because people are not religious. You're going to see two people with a keeper arguing and say, what's this? Who wants to be religious? Who wants to be religious? If you see the religious people fighting, who wants to be religious? So then it causes Chilul Hashem. On the other hand, I can go outside and smash my head against the wall a few times trying to figure out what to do. So I'm waiting, I'm waiting. It's 9.30 already. Until once Sadiq comes to me, he goes, come on, let's do it in the next door shul. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I'm like, you don't have to be sorry. Him, I don't forgive. Him, I don't forgive. Why don't I forgive him? Am I some rasha that I, that I am uh, 
very stringent on people that uh, I don't want to forgive them? Or is, that, is that what it is? No. There's a time to forgive and there's a time not to forgive. Forgiving is an extraordinary quality. But if somebody told you, listen, I just murdered your family member, Hasr Shalom, but I'm sorry. You gonna forgive him? Well, he said, I'm sorry twice. He's even gonna write you a letter and email, and he's gonna call you, and he's even put a billboard. I'm sorry. You gonna forgive him? You're not gonna forgive him. No. This is exactly what happens when someone cancels a shiur Torah for a schnitzel party. You're supposed to have shiur Torah. People that their lives are lost, their souls are lost, they have no idea what's going on, they have no idea what's right, they have no idea what's left. Some of them already started doing shiur Baruch Hashem, but they're still vulnerable. Some of them haven't started at all. Some of them, this is just their first shiur ever. So they're going to come here and they say, oh, there's no shiur Torah. Okay, I'm going back home. That person could be lost forever. Yeah. It's kind of, excuse me. For a schnitzel party. It's, it's kind of like uh, uh, humiliating somebody in front of people in public. Even more so. No forgiveness. Even more so. If you, I actually prefer if he humiliated me. If he humiliated me, if he cursed me, if he made fun of me, whatever. No problem. But getting in the way of Shiu Torah, the Torah calls a person like that Aru. It's Parashat Bechukotai and also Parashat Kitavo. Talks about different types of people that do different sins. A person that gets in the way of Torah, the Torah calls him Aru, which is the worst possible curse in the Torah. How do you say it? Aru. A R U R. Aru. So, now, the troubling part is that to people that he has in his crowd, that he's feeding them until they get drunk from the food so they can give him money. They think he's doing a mitzvah. They're, oh, we're celebrating the Rambam. We're celebrating the Yilula of the Rambam. We're celebrating this. We're celebrating that. When 80% of Am Yisrael is not even keeping the basic level of mitzvot, it's hard for me to understand what do we have to celebrate. It's hard for me to understand what this rabbi actually learned in yeshiva what he learned, Bechlal, to tell him that this is the right decision. Not only to cancel a shiur Torah, to tell him to go shoo, go away. But on top of that, instead of helping these people that he has, do tshuva, he's just feeding them. And he's making the religion look like it's just like another thing. Like, oh, we're here to eat. Now, if anyone wants to actually know what the Rambam actually did with his life, this is, what do you do during the Hilula of the Rambam? What do you do the Yilula of any one of the tzaddikim? What would they want you to do? They want you to learn their Torah. Do you think they care if you eat schnitzel or not? Do you think they care if you eat a hamburger or not? The Rambam said the most I ever slept was three hours a night. And sometimes I wouldn't be able to sleep because I had so much on my mind that I had to write my and learn my Torah. Three hours a night. His genius and wisdom was beyond anything we can possibly understand. 
the Yirat Shamayim of the Rambam is not even something that anyone in this generation can understand. Not have, but understand. As I said a story from last night, the Rabbi from Tzantz one time prayed to have the Yirat Shamayim of the Rambam. But the lowest level that he has. Not the highest level of Yirat Shamayim, not the highest, not the best type, but the lowest one. And he said that the next day Hashem granted his prayer, and he got the Yirat Shemayim. The problem was that this Yirat Shemayim was so high, he was so scared, he couldn't leave the bed. He couldn't leave the bed the whole day. And this was the Rambam's lowest level of Yirat Shemayim. So somebody like that, that values time, that values Torah, that dedicated his life to Hashem, you're going to spend that time eating hamburgers and chicken and canceling a Shiyu Torah? Read one page, one page out of his book. And you'll see who the Rambam was. He had all types of wisdom. Any wisdom that you want, whether it's medical wisdom, scientific wisdom, Torah wisdom, everything and anything that you want. And this very same Rambam told us in Ilchot Shuvah that only the ones that survive will do Shuvah. Meaning only the, only the ones that already started doing Shuvah, only the ones that became very dedicated to Hashem already, and there's only a few nicks, there's a few little mistakes here and there. They haven't learned all of the halachot of Shabbat. Of course, they don't drive. But, you know, they, once in a while, they make a mistake. Because they haven't learned that halacha yet. Those people that are 100% serious and committed to Hashem, He says, you have no problem. You have Olam Abba, you have no problem. But if you're still one of those people that hasn't made time to learn Torah on a daily basis, Rambam says, you cannot be resurrected with the dead. When the resurrection of the dead happens, you're not included. Why? Because it's, it's a must in Torah to learn every day. For a man. A man must learn Torah every single day. Yeah. Um, I have a question then. So, uh, regarding to this, uh, the incident you just spoke about. Let's say now I give tzedakah due to that. I give a tzedakah uh, in those places that are real, Mechal Shabbat or whatever. What is the meaning of that tzedakah? I'm doing a mitzvah. But I'm mitzvah to a place that is to a place that is not apparently uh... right. So the, 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 uh, like I said, the place itself is amazing, and the rabbi of the place uh, was obviously not there. He, I spoke to him after. He was very, very embarrassed and uh, very upset, and he said this will never happen again. So Bo Hashem, it's a great place. It's just that unfortunately, like I said, the guest, the guest was a amaritz. He looked like a rabbi, but he's amaritz. He's mm. an ignorant. <laughs> Uh, you know, the uh, rats that are going to eat the remains of the food are probably smarter than him for, for the stupidity that he did yesterday. But in regards to general places, like well, as far as giving tzedakah, you have to, just like when you make investments, mm-hmm. you're going to make investment, let's say you're going to buy a big piece of property, or you're going to buy a, a house for yourself, or you're going to invest into a stock. What do you do first? You investigate. Right. You research. Right, right. You're not going to say, oh, listen, I'm going to invest a half a million dollars into this property, but it looks good. Well, you're going to check. You're going to check the pipes. You're going to check the walls. You're going to check if there's any type of a, uh, damage. You're going to check everything. Check the roof. Is it going to cave in? Is it going to stay in? You're going to check. If you look at the stock, you're going to check. Is this company real? Is it fake? Is it report earnings on time? Is the CEO an honest person? You're going to do an investigation. Same thing with staka, especially staka that's real, it's serious money. If you're talking about $2, $5, no one has time and no one is expected to check where the $2 is going to. 
But if you're going to invest hundreds of dollars or thousands of dollars or tens of thousands of dollars into anything, then it behooves you to check. Where is that money going? Yes, it may say Judaism on the door, but it could be Christianity inside. It could be Abu Dazara inside. There's a whole sect called Messianic Judaism. To an ignorant person, this sounds like Jews that believe in a Mashiach. That's an average Jew. Every Jew is obligated to live in Mashiach. It's one of the 13 principles of faith that the Rambam wrote. Same Rambam. He said 13 principles of faith. You must believe the Mashiach is going to come. Problem is, Messianic Judaism is not even Judaism. It's Christianity. It's Christianity that calls itself Judaism. Because once you go inside, what do you find out? That the Mashiach that they're talking about is an idol worship. It's Jesus. So it says Judaism on the door. And the people themselves sometimes even call themselves Jews. But they're not Jewish. It's 100% idol worship. Or you have Reform Judaism. Or Open Orthodoxy. Open Orthodoxy. It's something new. Or you have Conservative. All three of them. All three of them are in a level of Abu Dazara. One of them has a dog that they give uh, bar mitzvahs to. Another one lets women be the rabbi, even though it's not allowed according to, to the Torah. Uh, another one uh, says that the rabbi can be a homosexual, and that's okay too, as if Hashem didn't mean it when he wrote in the Torah that someone that is homosexual has to get a death penalty. Like Hashem, you know, he didn't mean it. And that's what one of them actually wrote in an article. A rabbi, a conservative rabbi, one time wrote an article not too long ago. They asked him, what do you think about homosexuals? You know, it's written in the Torah, you're a rabbi. Turn it to Torah. Hashem says someone's homosexual. What does he get? Death penalty. <laughs> he didn't say, ah, eh, you know, but maybe he's funny. So let's let him go because he's funny. Or maybe he dresses really nice. He's a nice designer. He makes Fendi bags. We're going to let him go? No, Hashem says someone that's homosexual is the same level as someone that has a wife like Bilam. Who's Bilam's wife? <laughs> Bilam the Rasha, the prophet. His wife was a donkey. He was with an animal. So someone that's homosexual is the same thing as Bilam. Meaning, both of them get death penalty. This is Hashem wrote this. What does this rabbi write in this article? He didn't mean it. Hashem didn't mean it. Sure. It's not nice. It's not nice to say that. So if he didn't mean that, maybe he didn't mean anything. You close the whole Torah, goodbye. So when you go to a place like that, you have a serious problem, especially if you donate to a place like that, because in essence, what you're doing is you're supporting heresy. You're supporting the enemies of Hashem. It's like saying, it's like waving the Israeli flag while donating money to Hamas. No, no, miskenim, they're just Arabs, they don't have enough weapons. Yeah, but you know what they're doing with the weapons, they're killing Jews. Yeah, no, I have the Israeli flag. I have to, I'm supporting Israel. What's supporting Israel? Leave the flag, give the money. What are you doing with the flag? Stop, or at least stop giving money to the enemy. But that's what happens when we give tzedakah to the wrong place. So if a place is heresy, you're not allowed to support it. It's a hundred. It's not a mitzvah, it's a sin. There's no mitzvah in it at all. Whether it's reform, open orthodoxy, or a, uh, a conservative or Messianic Judaism, or a church, or anything that's anti-Torah. Unfortunately, in some cases, it's even parts of Orthodox. 
It's even parts of Orthodox that are really not so Orthodox. They call themselves Orthodox, but everybody drives to Shul. There's not even a minyan of Shomre Shabbat. The rabbi shows them where to park on Shabbat. Instead of telling them what to do and stop driving, he shows them where the parking is. Hey, come over here next, next to Steve. Park next to Steve. <laughs> come, come, we have Chulint. We have Chulint. Come, come eat with us. So this is these things like this. I mean, it's, it, on one end it's funny, on one end it's really, really sad because what happens is you feel bad for all these people that are driving and, you know, they, in essence, they feel justified driving because the rabbi doesn't say anything. They feel justified eating chametz on Pesach because the rabbi doesn't say anything. The rabbi doesn't say anything, so they eat. They feel justified playing music on Yom Kippur because the rabbi doesn't say anything. They feel justified because they listen, this guy is a rabbi. He knows verses from the Torah. He read it. So he knows. I never read the Torah, so I don't know. So he knows. So I'm going to trust him. And he says, you can turn on the light on and off on Shabbat, on Yom Kippur. You can eat chametz on Pesach. You can give bar mitzvah to a dog. The rabbi can be homosexual. Everything, all, everything goes. Yalla, I'm going. If, if there's a problem, because, yeah, listen, this guy, your own, says it's a problem. It says this Torah doesn't say that. But I'm going to go to Shabbat. I'm going to tell him, listen, my rabbi, in the, in the shul said I'm allowed to do it so it's his fault the problem is you're not going to be able to use that excuse because deep inside deep deep inside everyone knows what's true everyone knows what's right and wrong everyone knows what's modest and what's not modest everyone knows what's kosher and what's not kosher and if you don't know, you have to go to a mental hospital. I can't help you. Why? Because it's called the conscious. It's called the conscious. Once you don't have a conscience, you don't, be- you don't belong with civilization. Everyone knows what's modest, what's not. A woman knows if she's dressing sexy or if she's dressing modest. She knows. She knows. What, you think that she, because she's wearing the extra tight mini because she actually believes it's more modest? Is there a woman on earth that thinks that a mini skirt or a tight dress is really modest? Like seriously? You're showing the details of your body and you think it's modest? No woman in the world actually believes. She may say it out loud. No, it's not a big deal. What's the big deal? It's just, it's a skirt. The Rabbanit wears a skirt. I wear a skirt. Just mine's a little tighter. The Rabbanit wears a shirt. I wear a shirt. Just that my shirt is a v-neck. You can see parts of my body. What's the big deal? If he doesn't like it, don't look. Why is it my fault that the man looks? The reality of it is that when you're part of Ami Sled, you have to take responsibility not only for your actions, but for the whole nation. Part of the same family. We're all in the same boat. One of us can't go to the end of the boat and say, start digging on the floor to make a hole. And he says, hey, hey, what are you doing? It's like I'm making a pool. I'm making a pool. What do you mean making a pool? You dig a hole in the, in the ship, the whole ship drowns. It's like, okay, so it's my room. What do you mean it's your room? We're all going to drown with you. When a woman walks around in the street, not modest, everyone gets affected. The guy with the black and white, the guy with the red, the guy with the blue, the guy that's 
knows, the guy that doesn't know, everyone gets affected. When a so-called rabbi tells people it's okay to eat shu'alma and shnitzah instead of learn Torah, that's how you're going to actually honor the Rambam. That's how you're going to honor Shem Shamayim. Everybody has a problem. So we can't go up to Shemaim with that excuse because number one, we know. And number two, you're expected to learn. It's one of the mitzvot. You can't go up there, I didn't know. Okay, so why didn't you learn? In chapter 4 of Pirkei Avot, we're going to learn Bezat Hashem. It says, if a sin that's accidental, accidental sin, comes as a result of lack of study, it's no longer considered accidental in Shemaim. It's considered 100% on purpose. Why? If it's accidental because you didn't know, because you just never got to it. You learned all of Alachot Shabbat, and there was, let's say the last chapter you didn't get to yet. You didn't get to yet. You went already 120 years old, you went to Shemaim, you didn't finish all of Alachot Shabbat. But you made a sin that's on the last section that you didn't cover. Let's say you didn't learn it, you're not allowed to rip paper. Let's say you didn't know. But you learned a lot. But Hashem took you from this world to the next world. He said, you're already going to Gan Eden. You're going to get judged first. Oh, look, you made some sins, but uh, yes, but you didn't know. Why didn't you know? Oh, you studied. But you didn't get to this section. Okay, that's an accidental sin. I'll judge you based on accidental sin. If it was the time of the Bet HaMikdash, you'd have to bring a korban. You'd have to bring a sacrifice. Now on the other hand, the other guy, your next door neighbor, he also read paper on Shabbat. But he comes to Shemaim and they say, okay, you made a sin, you read paper on Shabbat. Why did you make the sin? Oh, you didn't know. Okay. Why didn't you know? Oh, you didn't learn. Now you just didn't learn this, you didn't learn anything. You went to eat Shalma at the Ilula of Rambam. You didn't learn the halachot that the Rambam wrote. You went to watch the baseball game, the football game, and whatever other game. You went to the casino. You went to your friend's house. You went to sleep. You went to everything else except Shul Torah. So you didn't learn because you just didn't feel like it. So that sin is intentional. Why? Because you intentionally didn't learn Torah. You intentionally didn't know. You know that you're supposed to. You know that there's Torah in the world. You call people say, "What are you?" You say, "I'm Jewish." Oh, so you knew you were a Jew. You weren't born like in the middle of Africa within a jungle. You knew you were Jewish. So people ask you, "What are you?" Oh, I'm Jewish, and you show me your Jewish star. So you knew you were Jewish. You knew that the Jews got Torah. That's what made us Jews. Before Al Sinai, before Mount Sinai. We weren't called Jews. We only started being called Jews after Mount Sinai. Meaning the Torah is what made us Jews. So you knew that the Torah existed, but you intentionally didn't want to learn it. So you didn't know because you didn't want to. And you intentionally did it. And therefore the sin becomes intentional. So this is why it's extremely important to learn more of what the sages said that to just have parties without even knowing who the sage is. 
You know, and that's, again, I'm not saying people are not allowed to enjoy themselves, enjoy yourselves, enjoy life, enjoy food, enjoy your marriage, enjoy. But leave some time for Hashem. Because that 15 days of darkness, it's around the corner, it's not far from now. The end of times, the Mashiach, it's, it's around the corner. It could be a week, it could be a month, it could be a year, a few years, either way, it's in our lifetime. Everyone knows it is. You said in the, I think it was the last show, mm-hmm. you said the guy said, Maju, look at the paper. He said, but that paper is not valid up there. No? Exactly. Exactly. Some people say, no, it's a, uh, they, uh, they have a, to that zoo, they have the Israeli identification card, and they think that that's going to uh, help them, you know, with, uh, with uh, getting uh, judged as Jews in Shemaim. I said, it would help you if you were able to take it to Shemaim. Problem is, paper stays here. Just like money stays here, and the house stays here, and the friends stay here, and everything stays here. Only the Neshama goes up there. Everything else is too heavy. Stays here. We leave it for the worms. Yes. Question. Yes. Facebook. Um, what if he did a sin to maintain Shalom Bayit? Depends what kind of sin. It depends what kind of sin. Now, we learned from Avraham Avinu that... For the sake of Shlom Bayit, Hashem is willing to change the rules. Now we have a rule in the Torah that we get that we're not allowed to desecrate Hashem's name. And that includes we're not allowed to erase His name. So if you ever see the real name of Hashem, Yud Kei Vav Kei, it's Yud Hey, but you say Yud Kei. You see it on a piece of paper and not allowed to erase it. Now what happens if, for example, we see that there's a Sefer Torah that's Pasul. It has the name of Hashem in it, but it's Pasul. Or you have a Mezuzah that's Pasul, that's not, that's not valid anymore. But it has Hashem's name on it. But it's not valid and you can't fix it. You can't erase it. The only thing you can do is bury it. You go, you bury it. So, erasing Hashem's name is a big deal. It's a big deal. In the Gemara Masechet Sota, we learn from Parashat Naso, which is in the Torah, about the, the whole story of the Sota, the wayward woman, where if a woman is suspected of cheating on her husband, she has to go to Kohen Gadol, she has to go to Bet Mikdash, and they have to find out if she cheated or she didn't cheat. If she cheated, death penalty if she didn't cheat biggest blessing in the world but before they get to this this is Mama Siat Dishmaidi asked this question because I actually had an idea that I had no idea how to connect it to this sure see how Hashem works so they connect the woman, not connect, they uh, bring the woman to the Kohen Gadol. Now obviously, Am Yisrael is not a nation of killers. We're a nation of people that worship Hashem. We're a nation of peace. Even if we have the authority and the right, we're always obligated to ask for peace first. If we want to go fight somebody, we ask them first, do you want to have peace? Do you want to make peace first? We don't attack. If you see throughout the entire history of Am Israel, we've never attacked. 
Why? Because Hashem says, always offer even our enemies, offer them peace. So we know the Kohen, the Gedol Adol, doesn't want to kill this woman. Even though she's accused of being, of being a cheater. How is she accused? She was not only caught, but witnessed, with at least two witnesses, to be in a closed room with a man that's not a husband. Which already is not modest, not allowed. If it's an open public, it's not great, but it's allowed. But if it's in a closed room, where no one else can enter, and who knows what you did, that's not allowed. If there's witnesses to it, she's suspected of cheating. One woman, one man, not allowed to be in a room together unless they're married. It doesn't matter whether she's Jewish or not. She's Jewish, not Jewish, doesn't make a difference. As a matter of fact, a uh, two men, one woman, also not allowed. A, uh, there's a lot of different halachot of Yehud and so on. This also becomes a problem sometimes when people adopt kids and uh, the kids grow up. They're not always these cute little things. You know, grow up to be a grown woman and a lot of crazy things happen when the kid is now a 20-year-old girl and the husband is a little crazy. This happens in a religious world too. People need to talk about it. People need to bring this up. This is a very, very important thing to understand. Why? Because the only way to protect ourselves from all of this stuff is Yirat Shemaim. Fear of the Almighty. If you know that Hashem is watching, you'll act differently. But as long as you think that no one's watching, you'll do whatever you want. So now this woman that didn't think anyone was watching, she was alone with a man. So she already did something wrong to begin with. They bring her to the Beit HaMikdash, to the Kohen Gadol. Kohen Gadol goes through a process. And he tries to intimidate her to get her to admit that she sinned. That she went with this other man. Because if she admits that she sinned, they don't kill her. They say you get a divorce, you go your way, the husband goes his way, you're also not allowed to marry this other guy. But you go your way, at least you admit it. If you don't admit it, then what has to happen? We have to give you this water, this holy water, the same water that the Kohanim would wash their hands and their feet before they would go and uh, do the work of the Beit HaMikdash. She would drink it. Then they would put the name of Hashem that's written on a scroll. They would dip that into the water. The ink will go into the water. She drinks it. If she cheated, her stomach explodes and she dies on the spot. They didn't need private detectives back then. (laughs) So this is cheaper. If she didn't cheat then, obviously, this is good news on, on some end, but she still got all this punishment beforehand. Why? Because before they, this whole intimidating process is not just do it, do it, do it. It gets physical. And they make her walk around for hours to get her tired. And the last two steps are the most critical that I know that someone is going to make a crazy comment about this, but this is what it says in the Gemara. The Gemara Masichet Sotah, page 7a, it says this, The Kohen then grabs hold of our clothing. If they're torn, they're torn. And if they're shredded, they're shredded. 
and he rips them until he uncovers our bosom, and he then unbraids our hair. Explanation. Last two steps are this. First, he grabs her clothing and shakes it until it rips, until it shows her bosom, shows the chest. Not exactly the most modest look, especially when you have old tzaddikim there. And only after that, he takes off her kisui losh. The last step is the kisui losh. The last step is to take off the kisui losh. You guys understanding what I'm saying here? We've always talked about in Shulim that the biggest thing was the fact that he was taking the kisui losh off and he shows her hair to everyone because a woman, even if she was a prostitute, would still walk around with kisui losh. It's not modest to show your hair when you're a woman. If you're a married woman, you have to cover your hair. Now, if you were suspected of cheating, they would try to intimidate you, and eventually they would show your hair, which is very, very embarrassing. It's the ultimate embarrassment to show your hair to the public. But here, this this Gemara, this is oral Torah, this is what happened at the Bet Mikdash, this is what happened for Mount Sinai. They say, showing your hair is even worse than showing your chest. Hashem Yerachim. Now, obviously, there was fear amongst the sages as they saw that the generations were getting lower and lower in holiness. And Rabbi Yehuda decided to no longer do the whole clothing thing. No longer show the chest. Because he said, maybe there's going to be somebody out of all the tzaddikim, maybe there's going to be somebody that maybe, maybe get turned on. So no more. But as far as Allah from Shammai, what Hashem said, this is what you're supposed to do. Because in Hashem's eyes, in Hashem's rationale, showing your hair is worse than showing your body. So, this is the process of Sutta. When Hashem sent the angels to Avraham Avinu, The angels told Avraham a little bit of news. One healed him because he had the Brit Milah a few days before that. One told him that we're here to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Where your cousin lives or your nephew lives, Lot. And third is, a year from now you're going to have a kid. Yeah, we understand you're a little old. But nothing is beyond Hashem. Now when his wife Sarah, who was a prophet, that according to Chazal was a bigger prophet than Avram, when she heard this, she started laughing. She laughed in herself, and she said inside, she didn't say it out loud, she said inside, now Hashem is going to give me a child when I'm old and my husband is so old? I'm old and my, my husband's old. I'm not, you know, I'm not 20 years old anymore, 90 years old. And my husband's old. She said it in her heart. She didn't say it out loud. She didn't say it on a loudspeaker. She didn't go on CNN. But Hashem, one of the 13 principles of faith is what? Hashem knows our thoughts. So, Hashem comes to Abraham and He says, Why did your wife, Why did your wife, 
say that she's old. But she didn't say she's old. She said, a husband's old. Meaning that Hashem changed the truth. Changed the truth because you know that if he told him, if he told Avram, hey, your wife thinks you're old, it may cause a shlom bite problem. So Chazal says, how is it that Hashem technically lied? If it wasn't written, we wouldn't be allowed to say it. How did Hashem lie? And Chazal explains to us, if Hashem is already telling us that He's willing to erase His name for the sake of Shlom Bait, because we see that to find out if the Sota, if she's innocent or guilty, Hashem puts, they put Hashem's name in the water and it erases Hashem's name and He becomes part of the water, which is a sin. You're not allowed to do that, but for the Sota you're allowed to. Why? Because you may find out that she didn't cheat. It may create Shlom Bait. And for Shlom Bait, you're even allowed to erase Hashem's name. Therefore, you're also allowed to lie for Shlom Bait. Because even Hashem himself lied for Shlom Bait. Now, this does not open up the doors for us to become compulsive liars to our husband and wife. You can't say, hey, honey, I love you, and then you have an affair on site for six years. No, no, it's Shlom Bait. It's Shlom Bait. No, that's not Shlom Bait. That means you need to get a divorce and... Your poor wife has to move on. You know, that's not Shlom Bait. Shlom Bait means simple things. Your wife asks you, do you like the dress? What's the default answer? You guys need to learn Shlom Bait. Yes, the default answer. You always like what she wears. Okay, another, okay, another one. She asks you if you like something, default answer is yes. Okay. She asks you, honey, do, you, do I look fat? What's the default answer? No. No, never. No. Never. Even if she became a mini whale, she never got fat. <laughs> a mini whale. She looks good. Okay. Now how can you... Okay, so now that's, you're allowed to lie for the sake of Shlom Bait. But how can you get to a point of actually believing that? That's a different question. How can you believe that your wife really is pretty no matter what? When she's 20, she's pretty. When she's 40, she's pretty. When she's 60, she's pretty. When she's 80, she's pretty. At 120, she's still pretty. In your eyes, she's always going to be pretty. How do you get to that point? Torah says, if you watch your eyes. If you watch your eyes, and only keep them for your wife, she will always be the prettiest diamond in the world. But if you look, like a fountain, everything that moves, if you're like this, like one of these guys, you look at this one, you look at that one, you watch TV, you see all the prostitutes on TV, you watch this, you see all the girls over here, you see the commercial, you see all these things. Oh five minutes later, you want to get a divorce. Yeah. You watch TV, five minutes, you see the program, you look at the woman on TV, yeah. you look at your wife, you look at the woman, you want a divorce. Why? Because the guy thinks he can get the girl on TV. He always thinks he can get the girl on the TV. Every guy thinks he gets the girl on the TV. The biggest enemy that a woman has for a marriage is television. <laughs> because they don't put ugly people on television. Even the ugly people are not ugly. Yeah. So what are you doing? You put a television in your house. He watches cable. He watches, uh, even if he watches sports. Or he watches any. There's commercials. There's a woman selling soap. But she's half naked. <laughs> or sometimes completely naked. They just don't show you the parts. Selling soap. Or cereal. Or a car. 
It's all naked women, pretty much. All immodest women. And the guy keeps looking at it. What do you have? At the end of the day, he doesn't even want to look at you anymore. Why? Because he's thinking about the other woman. So this is a very, very important thing for a woman to do, to understand that if, number one, she keeps her modesty, Hashem will bless her with a husband that's going to also work on himself. But obviously it has to be mutual. Sometimes you have situations where the woman has been given a tikkun, a big mission in life where she wants to fulfill the entire Torah, like some of my students, she wants to fulfill the entire Torah, she wants to be modest, she wants to learn Torah, she wants to do everything. The husband, nothing. It's a very, very big tikkun. It's a very, very big problem. Now, based on halakha, if he is not willing to keep anything, Shabbat, kosher, nothing, but at least he lets her keep everything, and he's willing to let her keep Tarat Mishpacha, which is family purity, you're allowed to stay married. As long as you're allowed to stay, let her go to the mikveh and you're not allowed to touch her during the time that she's impure. But if he's not willing to let her have family purity, you're not allowed to be with her. You're not allowed to be with him. You have to get a divorce immediately. No second chances, no counseling, no nothing. If he's not willing to let the wife go to the mikveh and keep family purity where he's only, they're only together for approximately half the month, there's no marriage. You must get a divorce. Now this is contrary to what's being taught out there sometimes. There is some people that teach things that are stupid. And uh, without mentioning names, we're going to mention what they said. Unfortunately in the world, not everybody's a tzaddik. So sometimes you have people that are uh, more animal than human. So the husband can't wait or can't act like a human being, and he, in essence, tries to force his wife to be with him. Now, this is obviously a problem. If a man forces a woman to be with him, it's, in essence, borderline rape, if not 100% rape. This is not allowed in Judaism. I mean, this is obviously not allowed in Judaism, and according to the Gemara, if a child comes from such an intimate Onis, which is rape, uh, this creates major, major spiritual problems for the children. Major problems. Also, obviously, huge sins for the for the husband. Who, well, in my opinion, should be killed. But we can't know who, who's who these days. But the point is, is that sometimes when you have an animalistic husband like that you really don't have much of a choice and you have to, you have to leave. You have to get a divorce. There's no, if, if, the, if the husband is not willing to let the woman be a woman, a kosher woman, that goes to the mikveh, you can't stay married. Now, on the other hand, sometimes you have the opposite. You have a husband that starts doing tshuva, but the woman is not interested. It's not interested. And you tell her, listen, okay, I understand you don't want to keep Shabbat, I understand you don't want to keep kosher, I understand you don't want to keep anything, but at least go to the mikveh, because if you don't go to the mikveh, I'm not even allowed to touch your finger. Your finger, I'm not allowed to touch. Forget about being intimate. Not allowed to touch your finger. So, go to the mikveh, and the woman says, no, no, I don't want to go to the mikveh. 
Now it was said, and I heard this. Not that it was said and I heard from somebody. I actually heard the, the person say this in a public lecture. That if your wife doesn't want to go to the mikveh, you're allowed to be with her anyway. Or you should go to a prostitute. Someone that calls himself Rav. Rav. Said, either go to a prostitute or be with her anyway. Don't force her to go to the mikveh. Because your rabbi told you that you need to go to the mikveh. Well, first of all, the rabbi didn't say that she has to go to the mikveh. God said it. It's called Tarat Mishpacha. You go to Shuchan Aruch, you go to Gemara, you go to the Zohar, you go anywhere that talks about Tarat Mishpacha, under no condition are you allowed to even touch your wife's finger. Finger, if she's not pure. So being with her because she doesn't feel like going to the mikveh, either get a divorce or don't touch her. Uri Zohar, Rabbi Uri Zohar, who's huge Zikwer Rabim Rabbi in Israel, used to be a big Broadway producer and success in the Alma de Shikra, in the, the, the world of lies, left everything, became religious, but in the beginning, his wife wasn't buying it. His wife was empty. And after a few years, he came to his rabbi. He's like, Rabbi, I haven't been with my wife for years. For years I haven't been with my wife. She doesn't want to go to the mikveh. She doesn't want to keep anything. Can I get a divorce? Can you give me a get? Can, you, can I go? He goes, no. Get her to do tshuva. He goes, but she's empty. She's empty Torah. He goes, that's because she doesn't understand. You stop teaching her, let the Rambam teach her. Rambam, he's like, she's going to read the Rambam because she's a scholar, right? Because yeah, big scholar, she's very chashu, very important person. How am I going to get her to read the Rambam? Because listen, take one of Rambam's books, read it in the kitchen, look at the papers, close it, and put it back on the kitchen table and leave. Every day. Every day, you read a few pages, laugh, smile, smirk, and put it back. Don't put it back in the library with everything else. Every day. Every day put, do this. Uri is saying, hey, what's this going to do? He goes, just do this. Last chance. Last chance. And then if she doesn't do this, she doesn't do tshuva with the Rambam, I'll get you again. No problem. And this is what he does. One day he comes back. And he sees his wife is all shaken up. And she's interested in learning Torah more than him. <laughs> and he asks her, what happened? What happened? He says, well, I went to school and I went to this and I learned this subject. And I was an expert in this and I was, you know, a big scholar. So one day, I don't know, I was just looking at you read. Every day you read this book. You read this book and you laugh. You read this book and you smile. You read this book and you say, Wow. And you put it there, and you put it back, and you put it back. So what is he reading? So one day, you weren't home. I just looked at this uh, Rambam book. And I opened the page. And I looked through the entire page. And I didn't understand even one word that he said. Because his intellect, his wisdom is so much higher than mine, I couldn't understand him. And I said, if that's a Jew, that's that smart, I have to learn what he says. 
And she started to actually learn what the Rambam says, and he says, Rabbi Uri Zohar says, she's more, she's more of a tzaddikah than me. But what are we, one of the things we learned from this is that even during his tshuva, he wasn't allowed to be with her. Why? Because she wouldn't go to the mikveh. So, for anyone who listened to this lecture full of tum'ah that said that a husband is allowed to be with his wife if she doesn't feel like going to the mikveh, it's 100% wrong. Two, going to a prostitute, also not allowed, for multiple reasons. Number one, a prostitute is always nida. She doesn't go to the mikveh. Which means, you're trying to run away from your wife because she's nida to go to a prostitute, but she's also nida. That's one. Two, you have another sin. Promiscuity. Three, another sin. Wasting seed. You just killed 300 million souls being with this prostitute. Point being is that the sins don't end. There's no permission in Judaism to be with a prostitute. Whoever said this is as wrong as can be. And if they say, listen, I didn't mean that. I meant something else. I meant that, you know, if they were going to rape somebody, then it's better that they go to a prostitute instead of rape. Well, the answer to that is that you have to read the Mishnah in Pirkei Avot, chapter 2, where it says that the rabbis must be careful with the words that they say. You must be careful with how you talk. If you're going to speak publicly, if you're going to teach, you have to teach properly. Meaning that everyone, even the idiot, has to understand you. It's called being idiot-proof. Go ahead. Amen. Amen. Uh, you said the rabbi should should know how to answer somebody, right? Okay, you know, like this witness people that they go and knock on the doors on Sundays. Jehovah's Witness. Yeah. Yeah. They uh they left uh gracias. They, they they left a magazine where they're talking about in my house, you know, at the gate, and I looked at it and, and they were talking about from the front page that they would show. What? Yo, hey, but, you know. She's asking if you're allowed to throw it out. Yeah, and, and so if, I asked, you know, I asked, and I said, look, I said, and the whole magazine, they were showing different churches, different places where... where They're showing they God's name in Hebrew, they, but it's idol worship at the same time. She's yeah, asking if you're, what, you're allowed, what are you so, supposed to do with it? I asked, I said, what do I do with it? I mean, I don't want to just dispose of the whole, the whole magazine is... is, is Hashem's name, right. you know, all over. He said, let me tell you something. He said, when... This comes from Gentile pain mm-hmm. persons, you know. Right. He said, you don't take it as really Hashem's name. You could throw it away. I said, uh, doesn't sound right. It doesn't sound right. I said to me, you know, because as Hashem. So let's see what Rambam says. Rambam, I'm the same Rambam that we're talking about him all night. Mm-hmm. Rambam says when a sefer Torah, not a magazine, a sefer Torah, is written by a non-Jew or an idol worshiper. It's not a sefer Torah. It goes right in the garbage. Okay. Well, so you see, if you see, let's say, for example, sometimes they have the uh, New Testament. It has... It has a Yomahe, yom, yeah. So, <coughs> excuse me. Right. You throw it in the garbage. 
Can, Burn it. You can, Not could. You should. That's what you have to do. Okay, what I did, you know, I'm... Um, you feel bad because you see Hashem's name. I, I understand. It's hard. Away. What I did is uh, I burned it. Good. Perfect. I did it excellent. Now, what do you do with tzitzit when they're just worn out? Oh, with tzitzit or any, any clay kodesh, anything that you do kdusha with, with tzitzit or, uh, or things like that, uh, if it's a mezuzah, you bury it. If it's a Sefer Torah, you bury it. If it's a uh, Tzitziot, you put them in tin foil, and then you throw them out like that. So it's a respectful way. You don't throw them out directly oh, with the okay. bananas and the chulent from, from Shabbat, but you know you throw you put them in tin foil, and then you throw them out in the garbage that way. Okay. Um, yeah, it's fine. It's a uh, it's just treating it with a little bit more respect, but nonetheless, it's still it's still uh, I'm in. It's still waste. But the the key here that we learn is that. Sometimes the rationale of Hashem Barach is not the same as us. We don't understand things the same, you know, the, the right. way. And that's why it's very, very important for us to, to learn what he says. And now somebody would say, okay, so in regards to this whole immodesty situation, in regards to this whole situation with uh, someone saying that the uh, husband is, a, um, is allowed to go with uh, prostitutes, when obviously you're not allowed to, but this guy's also a rav. How could it be that he says this and you say this? I can't speak for him. I can't tell you why he's making such a mistake. But I can tell you that if you look at the Shulchan Aruch, if you look at the Gemara, if you look at any book regarding Alachot, you will not find even one opinion that agrees. Now I got a message that he meant something else. And what he's trying to say is that if the husband was going to rape the, his own wife, it's better for him to go be with a prostitute because it says in the Gemara, in Masechet Kiddushin, that... If a man is about to sin, let him put on black clothes and leave the city so at least he makes the sin somewhere else. And he says, see, look at this Gemara. It says, if you're going to sin, might as well go sin somewhere else. So if you're going to sin, if you're going to go sin with your wife, go sin with a prostitute. It's better. This is why we understood this Gemara. If he's right, we should close the books start eating chametz, start eating taref, because everything. You say, no, no, I'm not eating at home. I live in Florida, but every sin is in Las Vegas. Every sin is in New York. But I live in Florida. I live somewhere else. I can do whatever I want somewhere else. I'm wearing black clothes. Wear black clothes, go make sin somewhere else. That's it. The whole plot goes to the garbage. Now, why does he say this? Because he's a boor in Amaharetz. He's an ignorant that just read just a small sentence and decided not to listen to the rabbis, but decided to be the rabbi. Meaning, he didn't see the commentary. The commentary, the basic level commentary by Tosfot. Tosfot is basic level. It's not like the, it's not like a midrash of a midrash. It's not like something that's far away. It's on the same page. It's on the same page. It's just like you see, you know, Torah, you have Rashi, on the Gemara, you have Rashi and Tosfot. So Tosfot says, of course the sages are not meaning it's okay for you to sin somewhere else. 
What they're trying to say here is that go put on black clothes because it was hard to find black clothes in those days. That by the time you spent all that energy getting the black clothes, you're not going to be so hot for this sin. You're going to say, ah, the heck with it. I'm not going to sin. Let me just go back to my wife and be a normal human being. So they took it literally. So he took it literally and he studied it like the Christians study the Torah. Christians study the Torah, they take it literally. And that's why they believe in idol worship. You can't study the Torah literally in, a, in such a way that you're completely distorting it. You have to look at what the rabbi said. You have to look at what the commentary said. And unfortunately, sometimes these people make stupid mistakes that even a fifth grader in yeshiva wouldn't make this mistake. But what's the difference between the fifth grader and this rav? This rav calls himself a rav. He even calls himself rabbi, he calls himself rav. What is the difference with this person? On this very same message, he says, you know, I need to, you know, people love my teachings because you need to be honest and you need to be humble and I am honest and I am humble. He actually says this about himself. He says, I am honest and I am humble. Now the definition of humility is that you're not going to call yourself humble. But this is when people have a distorted mentality. They live in their own world. What does the fifth grader have over this Rav? The fifth grader knows he has a Rav. The fifth grader submits to his Rav. If the Rav is in the classroom, the fifth grader says, For the Rav, what does Rashi mean when he says ABC? For the Rav, what does Moshe Rabbeinu mean when he says, I don't want to go, who am I to go save Am Yisrael to Hashem? He's arguing with Hashem for a week. He's arguing in Parashat Shavua for a week with Hashem. What does he mean, Kvod Rav? Now if the rabbi is not in the class, he went somewhere else, he left everybody to learn, who else does he go to, this fifth grader? He goes to Rashi. The Rav. Goes to Rashi. Goes to the Rav. He said, what does Rashi say? It's not that Moshe Rabbeinu Chash V'Shalom was disagreeing with Hashem and didn't want to do his will is that Moshe Rabbeinu was the humblest man that ever lived and was scared that maybe, maybe his brother Aaron is going to be offended because he's older than him and he has been helping Am Yisrael for all these years. And now all of a sudden you're going to come and you're going to take the job. Maybe he's going to be offended. But yeah, but Moshe, they're in slavery. You're going to save them. Why, he's going to get offended from you saving them? Moshe says, maybe. I know we're saving them. I understand we're saving them. I understand they're slaves. And instead of being slaves, they're going to go and get the Torah and become kings. I understand. It's a good thing. But maybe, maybe he's going to get offended. Maybe he thinks in the deep part of his heart that he should be the leader. Maybe. For that, he argued with Hashem for a week. Just not to offend his brother. The fifth grader knows the truth. Why? Because he listened to the Rav. Who's the Rav? Rashi. Who's the Rav? Tosfot. Rambam. Sages. People that were able to revive the dead. You cannot translate the Torah according to your liking. Or to your common sense. Because our common sense would all do respect to everyone watching and everyone here. Our common sense is closer to monkeys than it is to the Rambam. 
And the Rambam was only 900 years ago. And the Rambam was not even at a level of reviving the dead like all of the students of Rabbi Akiva from 2,000 years ago. And Rabbi Akiva was not even at the level of his rabbi, Rabbi, rabbi Eliezer ben Holkinos. And Rabbi Eliezer ben Holkinos was not even at the level of Rabbi Yochanan, Rabban Yochanan, which we learn about here. So we're not even at the level of any one of them, or even their shoes. And we're deciding, no, 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 I decide something else. I'm going to do something else. I don't agree with him. I don't agree with the Rambam. I don't agree with Tosfot. I have a different opinion. I'm humble. I'm honest. So not. Do you understand what's going on here? Yeah. And this is the epidemic of gava, of pride, that we have infesting the land when people are not willing to submit to the sages. Not willing to submit to the people that spoke to God. We barely speak to ourselves. They spoke to God in different ways. We barely know Modeani by heart. They knew the entire Torah back and forth 50 times over. Just to start the day. It's very, very important to understand the significance of the sages and who we're dealing with because as long as we don't understand who they are, we're never going to agree with them. As long as I don't understand who wrote the Gemara, who is the person mentioned here in this Gemara that talks about how the process of the Sota is the wayward woman is to show her chest, then take off her Kisui Rosh. I mean, it sounds crazy. It sounds like we were like, I don't know, in Iran or something. It sounds like we're just a bunch of fanatic, crazy people. What are you doing? Let the woman live. Leave her alone. She doesn't feel like wearing. She doesn't feel like being with her husband. She doesn't feel like being modest. She doesn't feel like doing it. Let her live. Right? The mentality today. Live and let live. That's the mentality today. Live and let live. Leave me alone. But once you realize that the people that wrote it spoke to God, were prophets, were sages, were higher than prophets, were able to revive the dead. I mean, this is, this is, this is not regular stuff. This is not, this is not me and you. And to take their words and distort them and disrespect them and treat them like it's a newspaper, chaval. So this Mishnah continues to connect with everything we've talked about it thus far. Because we see from this week's parasha, was the first time we hear about Moshe Rabbeinu, the prophet of all prophets, the greatest human being that ever lived. We get introduced to him. And Hashem, in essence, argues with him for a week. And Moshe Rabbeinu, in his humility, tries to get out of the job. Not because he doesn't want to do it, but for the sake of his honor of his brother. Maybe he's going to be offended. Showing us how significant humility is. Where he already learned, Moshe Rabbeinu already learned from his ancestors, from 12 tribes, 
He learned from the story of Judah and Tamar that it's better to jump into a light fire, a lit fire, huge giant fire, and get burned alive than embarrass someone in public. There's no forgiveness for that, right? No share of the world to come. Unless someone does serious tshuva. But the tshuva of embarrassing people in public is not an easy tshuva. Because you have to make sure that every single person that saw it also saw the, also saw the apology. The apology has to be at least as big as the embarrassment. Sometimes that's not possible. In the times of the Rambam, as you see, Sol Siyat Bishmai Hashem has given me a lot of Rambam stories because I didn't think about any of these before. He was an innovator. He was Renaissance man. He was something special. He was born in the wrong generation. He was supposed to be born in the generation of Moses. And they say that from Moses to Moses, no one was like Moses. Rambam's name was Moses. From Moshe Rabbeinu to the Rambam, there's no such thing. There's nobody who was born like Moses. Special people. So people ask, wait, this Mashiach is going to come. Mashiach is bigger than Moses or no? He goes, no, no. Hashem says no one's ever going to be bigger than Moses. Or so can, can I meet Moses when the Mashiach comes? Moshe Rabbeinu's Kedusha is so huge if we're able to even look at him, look at him, it's already going to be a merit. Look at him from 15 miles away. His Gdusha is going to be more significant to fire than the sun. You want to meet him, hang, shake his hands? Alvai, we get to see Bechlal a picture of him. But Moshe Rabbeinu didn't exactly have such an easy life. He didn't have an easy life. He tried helping Am Yisrael. What did they do? They called him a thief. He tried helping Am Yisrael. They called him a womanizer. Maybe he's trying to steal our wives. He tried to give him a Torah. They go on idol worship. He saved all the Egyptians that said they wanted to convert. They all became the Erev Rav. Balagan. Craziness. Rambam had his own tikkun. Being a very smart person, very studious person, He learned even the works of Aristo, Aristotle, Plato. And he wrote multiple books. He was a philosopher also. Philosopher, scientist, doctor. mathematician, doctor. doctor, giant posek. The biggest posek we've ever had in the last thousand years at the very least, if not ever. Giant of giants to such a point that even the Goim have a statue of him and they call him one of the 18 most important people that ever lived. Yeah. I've been thinking uh, Washington, I believe it is, right? Washington. It's also one in Spain, too. Oh, okay. This is 11th century. So Rambam was something special. He was also the doctor for the king in, uh, in Egypt. But when he came with his, out with his book, Guide to the Perplexed, uh, yeah, uh, Guide to the Perplexed, I think it's called in, uh, in, um, in English. It included some wisdom from the Goyim. Included all types of philosophical arguments and so on. And the big, big rabbis didn't like it. 
They didn't like it. They didn't, right away they saw some information from the Goim. Immediately they called it Kfirah. They called it, they went against it and they started burning the books publicly. They started burning the Rambam's books publicly. Who was the leader? Rabbeinu Yonah. Rabbeinu Yonah, if you actually notice, if anyone that has this particular Pekavot book or many, many books, commentary is very common from Rabbeinu Yonah. But Rabbeinu Yonah made a very big mistake here. He's leading the pact to burn Rambam's book publicly. It's not like today. Five minutes, you got 5,000 books in a printing machine. Back then, every book is handwritten. If you actually had one of those books today, it would be priceless. Some people collect these things. So he would burn these books for one day. Rabbeinu Yonah decides, you know what? Let me actually read this book. Why do you think about reading this book? Because he saw the Goim decide to start taking Gemara from the Yeshivot and start burning them too. Like, hey, if you're burning Jewish books in Rambam, let's burn this too. And he realized in his deep heart... I made a mistake. I made a mistake. I went against the Rambam publicly and I actually didn't read the work yet. I just saw a few things and it didn't sound so good. Because it was different. Because it was unusual. Because it didn't agree with my pre-existing knowledge. But I didn't check the whole thing yet. So then he started checking it. And he realized that not only was the Rambam right, but he was actually the Gdolado. We went from Katsele Katsi, from one corner of the world to the other corner of the world. On one end, you're calling him Jesus, you're calling him a Kofel, you're calling him a heretic. On the other end, you're calling him Gdolado. Rabbi Akiva, it's a big, big, huge distance. Gan Eden, Genom. Oh, Jesus, Genom, Gan Eden. So, he has to fix it. How do I fix it? For the rest of his life, he went from town to town, and to every Bet Knesset, and every Jewish community, and said, I was wrong. The Rambam is right. He's the Gdolador. Listen to him. And for years, decades, I think it was 30 years, and throughout this time, he wrote a very, very famous book called Sharet Tshuva, the gates of tshuva. And we learn a lot of things from this tshuva. Who do we learn it from? Rabbeinu Yonah. Why, why is it so good to learn this book, Sharet Tshuva? Because he actually did tshuva. 30 years tshuva for one sin. The Tfaz, we don't even think it's a sin. Well, okay, so you burn some books, big deal. Buy him some new ones. Go to the bars and nobles. They have a sale. Sure. Get some kids to write new books. No. I went against the sage. I went, I went against the Talmud Chacham. Rabbeinu Yonah. Yonah. Y-O-N-H. So why basically he did? He, he, went, he went from... Uh, he burned the books in public, which would embar- embarrass the Rambam. So then he went to try to give credit to the Rambam, telling everybody he was wrong, and the Rambam is right, really. Yeah. And he... Throughout the next uh, couple of decades, he kept telling everybody that he was wrong about what he said about the Rambam. The Rambam was right. And throughout this process, he actually told his own story of how he did full tshuva. 
for this one sin. So, why is it important to learn from someone with experience? Because if, let's say, for example, if I came to, if somebody came to you and said, "Listen, I can teach you how to be rich. I can teach you how to be rich." But the guy is homeless. He's homeless. He doesn't have any money. You're not going to come to the course. But if the guy is a multimillionaire, it's a better chance you're going to go to the course. If the guy says, "Listen, I can teach you about shlombait. I can teach you about how to have a great marriage." Oh, tell us about your marriage. Which one? First one, second one, third one, or fourth one? <laughs> you going to come to the course? You're not going to come to the course. The guy is divorced three times already. But if the guy says, oh, I've been with my wife for 30 years, and she still likes me, okay, I'll pay for the course maybe. You understand? So when someone writes a book, from experience, when someone tells a story from experience, it carries much more weight. And that's why in the book of Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 3 of the book of Lamentations, Echa, in, in Hebrew it's Echa, in English it's Lamentations, chapter 3, Jeremiah says, I know suffering. That's how he starts the book. That's how he starts the chapter. I know suffering. Why you know? Because if you read the first two chapters... It talks about Choban Bet HaMikdash. It talks about the destruction of Bet HaMikdash. And Jeremiah watched the whole thing. It says wow. pools of blood, people being murdered, Shem Achem, all types of disasters. He saw all of this. He says, I know suffering. I saw it. I saw it firsthand. So from him we listen to, he knows suffering. For a millionaire we take advice of how to be rich. Unless he became a millionaire by telling people he was a millionaire. You know, sometimes people say, I can teach you how to be rich. But the way they got rich is by telling people just that to get rich. Not, they didn't actually have a real job. The guy who wrote a book of how to be rich when he was broke. But he got rich from writing the book about how to be rich. That's not really... That, 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 that's a common thing. Yeah. So, you want to get experience, you want to get information from people with experience. Now... <coughs> this Mishnah says Rabban Yochanan, which we learned a little bit about over the last couple of weeks, including yesterday, which we know is one of the greatest sages that ever lived. And yesterday we learned that he had five key students. He had many, many students, but there were five that were exceptional. Five that he said, these are going to be the ones that continue the Masoret. They're going to continue... Judaism, they're going to continue the leadership and the authenticity of the Torah. Now we learned yesterday, why did he pick these five? I mean, he had thousands and thousands of students. Were they the smartest? Were they the richest? Why? Why did he pick these? And last night, Mishnah, we, we learned that we picked them because they were the most humble. They were so humble that they would have never said any of the words that he said about them, about themselves. There would never be one of these guys say, I'm humble, I'm honest. <laughs> and the reason why humility is a key character trait, because we learned from the one that got the Torah. Who got the Torah? Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Rabbeinu. The humblest man that ever lived. Right. Shlomo Melech says, Gavat Adam Tashpilenu. 
the pride of man will be the, the way that Hashem embarrasses him eventually. Someone that's very proud, has a lot of pride, thinks of himself. When Hashem eventually punishes him, he's going to use what he was so proud of to embarrass him with. So for example, someone that's very proud of being rich, throws his money around, makes everybody think he's the boss, acts like he's the boss, treats people with disrespect, because he has some money. Burn the money with a sewer lighter. Yeah, burns. <laughs> things like that. Nonsense. What does Hashem people do to people like that? What's the best thing you can do to a rich person? Take away his money. Once he has no money, there's nothing to be proud of anymore. Right. One guy came to a rabbi, and I'm sorry, but I have a problem and I have to work on it. He goes, what do you have to work on? I have to work on my pride. I have a lot of pride. I'm very, very proud of myself. He goes, okay. All right, so you have something for me? I can read. He goes, no, no. You know what? Just wait for me outside. Two hours. In two hours, I'll give you the solution. He goes, okay. Two hours, he's waiting outside like this. He's waiting, he's waiting, he's waiting. Somebody comes in to see the rabbi. He says, go see him. He points to him. He sends it to him. The guy comes to him and he says... Oh, yeah, I just spoke to the rabbi. I have some financial problem. He says, I should come to you. He goes, financial? I don't have any money to give you. He goes, no, but the rabbi told me. He goes, I don't know why the rabbi is sending you to me. I don't have any money. So the guy leaves. Short while later, a different guy comes. He says to him, hey, I have some uh, problems with my business. The rabbi sent me to you. We're in the stock market business. Stocks are going up, but I'm short. Stocks are going down, but I'm long. You have any advice what we should do with Google, what we should do with Apple? I don't know anything about the stock market. What are you sending you to me? What's wrong? Is Rabbi crazy? I don't know anything about the stock market. The guy leaves. Sure, <clears throat> while later, a little yeshiva boy comes. 14-year-old boy comes. Hey, Kvod Rav, send us to you, Kvod Rav. And he said, what does Rashi mean? When he says that Moshe Rabbeinu wasn't excited about getting the job. Moshe Rabbeinu, Rashi, I don't even know. What are you talking? I don't know. I'm not telling Mitracham. I don't know anything. I don't know what this rabbi is doing. So the guy gets up and he goes to the rabbi. He goes, what do you keep sending all these people to me? I don't know. I don't know how to answer them. I can't help them. So the rabbi says to him, I sent you somebody that needs money. You don't have any money. I sent you somebody that needs business advice. You don't know any business. I sent you somebody that needs to learn Torah. You don't know any Torah. What are you so proud of? <laughs> what are you so proud of? What do you have so much pride for? Wow. When you really think about it, there's absolutely no reason for a person to ever be proud. If you look at Mesilat Yesharim, the Ramchal, Rabbi Chaim Moshe Luzato, wrote an ex- several extraordinary books. We only have a few of over a hundred that he wrote. And in Mesilat Yesharim talks about different ways to work on your midot, different things that a person needs to work on. And in chapter 23, talks about humility. This is a section 
you know, usually I have a lot of highlighters and pen marks in my books to remind me of different things. But once in a while I have one of these. Not often, but once in a while I have one of these. Where there's no highlight, but there's just a note. What's the note say? Read at least 100 times. <laughs> this is what it says. When a person observes his lowly state of corporeality and his inferior beginnings... He has absolutely no reason to be conceited. Instead, he should be ashamed and embarrassed. What's the beginning? Beginning, you came from a seed. A putrid seed that some people waste into the garbage. Seed you came from. What do you end up as? A corpse the maggots eat. Because he realizes where he came from. He realizes where he's going. What are you so proud of? Everything that goes inside your body comes out stinky. What are you so exactly proud of? To what is this uh, analogy like? To a herdsman of pigs who rises to power. As long as he remembers his former days, he cannot be haughty. He says, listen, even if the pig becomes the king, even if they call him the uh, beauty uh, king... He still knows he's a pig. He's still a pig. Right. So, the Rabcha is not here to insult us. He's here to give us a reality check. And when he considers as well that at the end of all his great endeavors, he will return to dust, food for the maggots, his pride will surely be subdued and his unbridled haughtiness will be forgotten. For what value is there in the good and the greatness that he has acquired, when in the end, shame and embarrassment prevail. When he starts thinking about what's going to happen at the end, all your money, all your cars, all your fame, all your songs, all your stocks, all your bonds, all your real estate, all of that stays here. Everything stays here. All the things you were so proud of, stay here. You show up to Shemaim, empty. Only thing you carry... It's two things. Mitzvot, Averot. Good deeds, sins. That's it. These are the two things that you actually own. What are you so proud of? You have so many more mitzvot and Averot? You have so, are you so rich in mitzvahs? Are you such a tzaddik that you don't even make any sins? That your sin account is broke and your your mitzvahs is overwhelming? What are you so proud of? And he continues. And when he reflects further and imagines the moment of his entry into the great court of the heavenly legions, seeing himself before the king of all kings, the holy one blessed is he, holy and pure to the ultimate degree of holiness and purity in the midst of the holy ones. Servants of strength, mighty warriors who do his bidding, who have no blemish. Everyone that serves Hashem is perfect. He is perfect of perfect. And you, you show up with all your zevil, all the garbage you brought from the world, the sins you brought. And he stands before them deficient, lowly, denigrated, 
by his very nature, impure, defiled, on the account of his deeds, will he even dare raise his head? You're going to say, hey, hey, I'm humble, I'm honest. Are you going to say that over there? I'm humble, I'm honest. I, 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 I donated $6 to Kiruv. I, I did Shmai Sayal Alamita six times. Will he be able to justify himself if they ask him, what have you to say? Where is the pride and honor that you were born in the world? What will he answer? How will he respond when rebuked in this manner? Surely if a person would for just a moment visualize this truth, portray it, portray it realistically and vividly, all of his haughtiness would vanish and never return. This is as soon as someone actually pictures just these two paragraphs in reality, he will never ever be arrogant again. That's true. Very graphic. Very touching. This is Ramchal, not me. Don't blame me. I'm still trying to read this a few hundred times. <laughs> so, so what we can read, sorry, uh, mitzvot and avirot. It's the only thing you have. Mitzvot and sins. Now, one of the things that people ask about a lot is why are so many disasters happening in the world? You have natural disasters, Shemelachem happening, it seems like a weekly basis. Every family has damage. One person intermarried, another person died, another person is sick, another person got money stolen, another person is a thief. Every family has a disaster. Am Yisrael is suffering, we're getting stabbed, we're getting abused, we're getting insulted. It's become popular to be anti-Semitic. Most recent statistics said that over 40% of Americans are ally, call themselves anti-Semitic. They openly are anti-Semitic, 40%. The ones that, the other 60% doesn't say they're not anti-Semitic, just they're not open about it. They're not so open about it. This is our ally. This is our friends. So what about our enemies? Everyone says, no, Islam is a, you know, it's a peaceful religion. Oh yeah, what? When they're cutting off the head? Or when they're putting it back on, on a pole? When is their peaceful religion exactly? You see the Al Jazeera clips that they put online sometimes. You see what these imachshimam terrorists say about Israel. All they want is to kill us. And all they're doing is killing us. And what is the Israeli government, the genius Israeli government doing? What are they doing? The Israeli soldier, poor soldier, killed a terrorist. Terrorist came, we spoke about this last time I was here. He killed a terrorist because the terrorist, if you saw the video, tried to kill him. Mm-hmm. It's not that the terrorist was just standing there smoking a cigarette saying, ah, maybe I should be a tzaddik, now I'll be a terrorist. Maybe I should be a tzaddik. Maybe... No, no, no. He tried to kill him. He took a knife, tried to kill him and a few other people. So he shot him and he killed him, which is a normal thing you would do. Right. In America, if you have a sandwich in your hand that looks like a knife, they already shoot you. That's right. Whether you're young or old. Doesn't matter. 
But if you're black, you don't even have a sandwich, they'll kill you. For sure. But in Israel, if you're an Arab, and you have a knife, and you're trying to kill somebody, if someone, chas v'shalom, tries to kill you, they're in trouble. If they actually kill you, they throw you in jail. But it's a soldier. He's trying to kill him because he killed him because he's killing other people. But this is the stupidity of this generation. What about the resolution that the, the big countries of the world say Israel doesn't exist? Exactly. So now you have. But even the other countries not liking Israel is not news. They've never liked us. They've never liked us. Anti-Semitism was created in this week's parasha. This week's parasha, Parashat Shmot. It's the first time officially where a country said, let's go against the Jews. Let's fool them before they grow and join our enemy and fight us. That's what Paro said. Beginning Parashat Shmot. Let's fool them. Let's fool them from being businessmen to working for us. Let's give them some government positions. Pretend. Let's give them some fake money, pretend. We'll give them bitcoins. Let's give them pretend significance in the world, but as soon as they give us everything they have, we'll change our mind. We'll say, no, no, you know what? All that money you gave us is actually worth a lot. And everything we gave you is worth nothing. So now you have nothing, so you might as well work for us for free. Let's fool them into thinking that we're their friends. Let's fool them to think that we're their allies. Except at the time of need. So anti-Semitism by the countries? It's not a surprise. It's been happening for over 3,000 years. It starts with this week's parasha. The UN. It's not new. They've always been anti-Israel. That's their resolution. You put Hamas, UN, same thing. Why? You didn't see the videos where the actual terrorists shoot the missiles from a UN building? Why, am I the only one that saw it? Why, you think that the workers, the employees of the UN didn't see it? Uh, they probably put the ammunition in. No, 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 it's a little heavy. Let me help you, Mr. Arab terrorist. Yeah. Let me help you. <laughs> Let me give you a hand. Let me give you a hand with this <laughs> missile. No, no, aim that way. Same thing. So the Goyim hating us, Esav Sonet Yaakov, it's Alakha, from Mount Sinai, Hashem Shed. Hashem said, Esav sonet Yaakov. Esav is always going to hate Yaakov. It's a rule. So yes, there's a few people that are decent human beings that like the Jews, and Bezat Hashem, those that are righteous. Gentiles. But in general, it's not a surprise if a, if a, if a non-Jew hates a Jew. It's not a surprise. You guys don't see some of the YouTube comments that I get? Sometimes I delete them, sometimes I leave them there. Yeah, yeah. I got That's one nice guy thing. calling me, yes. Yeah, I don't know, just all types of uh, Nazi comments that he made. Yes, he wants to that. kill me, he wants to this, he wants to that. So I told him, thank you for embarrassing me publicly. Just as our God said, I bless those that bless thee and I curse those that curse thee. <laughs> That's heavy. <laughs> That's pretty heavy. Hashem said that. No. So I just repeated it. Touche is what he said. The point is, is that the goyim hating us is not a surprise. Yeah, but, but one, one, one question triggers me is, uh, okay, is, we're talking here about ignorance as a as a as a point that 
Israel, the one that can make definitions of people. Because, for example, I, I think I told you once in a story that I have a friend. She is very smart, very smart person, very well educated. Mm-hmm. And one day, I, I show her a little piece of writing of Rambam. And she started reading it, and she started crying. Right. And I say, Lee, w- w- what happens? W- what moves you say? I say, I have a son that has 37 years. He was born in a hospital in Canada mm-hmm. that has the name of Rambam. Oh, and she never knew. Until that moment, I thought that I was a toy. Oh, yeah, yeah. It wasn't a, a real name, Rambam. It was a toy, it was something rare, but she I didn't Rambam know that was. was. And she's a very smart person. Wow. The so biggest mistakes in history were made by years. smart people. Mm. The biggest mistakes in history were made by smart people, so called educated people. Um, the smart and secular knowledge doesn't mean very much because you could be the smartest guy in secular knowledge, math, science architecture, archaeology, all types of information, but you can still be a beast of a human being. It doesn't change your character. You can still be a horrendous personality. You can still be a rapist. You could still be a pedophile. You can still be a murderer. Even if you're a genius in math, science, the only subject, if you want to call it subject, that forces you forces you to change your character is Torah. Only thing. Why? Because if you learn Torah for the wrong reason, you learn Torah because you want to give speeches. You want people to give you respect and call you rabbi. You want to write books so you can make a lot of money. You want to give lectures and charge fifteen, twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 a lecture. Meaning you're learning Torah not for the sake of Torah. You're learning Torah... For the sake of money. On that Chazal right? this very same Chazal, these very same sages, take a verse from the Torah, from the five books of Moses, and they say, Lo That Torah, it's not from heaven. From somewhere else. It's not the Torah. You're learning for the wrong reason, my friend. Your Torah is for money. Your Torah is for fame and fortune. It's not Torah, my friend. You can learn the halachot by heart and you can do all these things and you can wear the hat and have the beard and have all these things. All that stuff is great. But your Torah, it's worthless. Worthless. And the same Gemara says, a Talmit Chacham, meaning someone that knows Torah, that has bad midot, nevela sucha tova mimenu. A dead animal in the street that a car ran over is better than him. Better than him. The guy who learned Torah his whole life. Learned Torah, learn, learn. He's giving shurim. He tells people he knows this and he's those this and he's those this. But he says, I'm humble. I'm honest. I also charge $15,000 a lecture. I also am only doing this for the money, not because I believe anything I say. They say the dead animal, the dead rat just ran over. It's better than him. Kabbalah says this. Very same sages that can revive the dead. So now, we ask ourselves, how could all of this be? We'll finish with this main point. How could all of this be? And we'll leave the rest of the Mishnah for next week, Bezal Hashem. But how could all of this be? How could we have all of this disaster? People are trying to stab us. 
People are trying to kill us. The UN feels proud to be against the Israel yeah. country. The Israeli government themselves are against themselves. We have more terrorists on the government of Israel than we have actual good people. Everything's upside down. How could this be a sham? How could this be? What are you? Just, did you go on vacation? How could this be? Gemara, Masechet, Sota, page 47b, gives us a detailed explanation of why. When the number of Torah scholars who were pleasure seekers increased, justice was perverted. And deeds deteriorated. And consequently, Hashem is not satisfied with the world. When the people that are supposed to be learning Torah Instead of learning Torah and teaching Torah, they have schnitzel parties. They cancel shiurei Torah that someone wants to do to go make chicken, to go make popcorn. They want to enjoy the world, like this Gemara is saying. When instead of being bnei Torah, they're pleasure seekers. What pleasure seekers? Trying to enjoy this world. I want to get donations so I can buy a bigger house. I want to get donations so I can buy a bigger car. I want to get this. I want to get a nicer hat. I want to look better. I want to do better. I want to invest in the stock market. You want to enjoy this world. You're not waiting for the Mashiach. You like this world too much. You like this world too much. That's what he's saying. You want to enjoy this world. You're a pleasure seeker. You're not studying Torah for Torah's sake. You're studying Torah so you can make money. So you looks like you're a tzaddik. It looks like you're humble and honest. It looks like it. It says Hashem is not satisfied with the world because of you. When the number of judges who displayed favoritism in judgment increased, and command of you shall tremble before any man. You shall not tremble before any man, which is a verse in Deuteronomy 117. When that commandment ceased to be practiced, and the commandment of you shall not show favoritism in judgment was discontinued, and people removed the yoke of heaven and placed on themselves in its stead the yoke of flesh and blood. When the number of those who whispered to the judges during judgment increased, divine anger increased in Israel. And divine presence departed from its mist. He's saying when the judgment in the courts started deciding cases based on who's richer than the other one, who's bribing me more than the other one, who am I scared of more than the other one? Oh, no, no, I can't rule against him. He's a big guy. He's going to ruin my business. He's going to ruin my position. If I go against him, if I convict him, I'm going to lose my job. If I convict him, I'm not going to be president. If I convict him, I'm not going to get a promotion. 
We're not looking for justice anymore. If I go against him, they're not going to accept me to be on the board. There's a commandment in the Torah not to show favoritism even to the poor. There's a commandment in the Torah don't ever be scared of anyone, any man. The only thing you're allowed to be scared of is God and your parents and your rabbi. Other than that, you're not allowed to be scared of anything else. When we're scared of people, as it clearly says here in the Gemara, divine anger increased in Israel. Hashem gets angry. What does it mean divine anger gets, uh, gets increased in Israel? Something happens. He leaves and he brings something else. Because it says God stands in the, in the divine assembly. In the midst of judges, he judges. God stands in a divine assembly, meaning the nation of Israel, only when the verdict of the judges reflects his judgment. Hashem can only be there when the government is running the country according to its Torah, according to proper laws, not according to the stupidity of convicting their own soldiers for murder of terrorists. That's stupid, yeah. That's when the number of people increased, of whom scripture says their hearts lust for gain, then there increased the number of those who say regarding evil, good, and regarding good, evil. And when the number increased of those who say regarding evil, that it's good, and regarding good, that it's evil. Rabu oi oi ba'olam, the cry of woe, woe increased in the world. Because when people start doing things the opposite, they say, hey, driving on Shabbat, mitzvah. Just drive on Shabbat to be Knesset. <laughs> Walking two miles to be Knesset, no, no, no. Drive, drive, it's better. <laughs> Just as long as you come and you donate money to the be Knesset, everything's good. <laughs> they say whatever is a mitzvah, they say it's no good. Whatever is avera, they say it's good. A woman wants to be modest, they make fun of her. I have a student, she's Tzadika, maybe 19 years old, 18, 19 years old, trying to be modest. For a 17-year-old, 18, 19-year-old to be modest is like, uh, might as well split the seat. Yeah. Yeah. Huge! And she comes from a house full of secular anti-Torah family. Now you would think, okay, you know what, she wants to be modest. Support her, What, what do you care? Support the young girl, let her be modest. What do you care? Does it affect you in your life? You're not marrying her. You're not dating her. It doesn't matter. If you want your wife to look like a prostitute, you marry someone who's a prostitute. She wants to be modest. Especially if she's your little sister or your little daughter. If anything, you should want her to be modest. Of course. Who wants their daughter to look half naked in the middle of the street? But what happens with this family? Miskena, what a tikkun she has. They tell you, wearing too much clothes. You're wearing too much clothes. You don't look like us anymore. Take off the clothes. Oh my God. Take off the clothes. You don't look like us anymore. And they start making fun of her and insulting her and cursing her and fighting with her. This is a tikkun. This is genom in this world. This is what this Gemara is talking about. When the mitzvah, you tell them it's bad. It's evil. And the evil, you tell them it's mitzvah. Rabu oi oi ba'olam. The increased woe woe in the world. Meaning, you used to say, yay, now it's oi. 
You say, yeah, I'm celebrating, but then there's punishment in the world. Like, oh, this one died. This one got cancer. This one got sick. This one lost all of his money. This one got divorced. How many problems do we need to get until we wake up? How many oi oi do we need? How many? How many? And this continues saying, and those who spit far distance increased, the number of arrogant people increased, and the number of Torah students decreased, and the Torah goes about searching for those who would study it. The Torah goes like a homeless person. Please study me. Please Parashat Shavua. Please Gemara. Please Musa. Please something. Please study something. I go to Goim. Beg me. Beg me to convert. Beg me. Jews? Oh, busy. Mm-hmm. The Torah even goes to the Goim. Okay, you want to study me? At least somebody's going to study me. Become a Jew now. We go, to the, we go to the Jews. Please study me. The Torah is like homeless. Please study me. Read one parasha, one page, one word. It's five letters, five mitzvot. Please study me. Why? Because it says, because the arrogant people increased. What is, why does arrogant people have to do with people not wanting to study Torah? What's the connection? Because the Torah is knowledge. The arrogant person already believes he has knowledge. Therefore, he doesn't need to learn Torah. The arrogant person reads just the verse and says, I'm going to be the commentary. I'm going to be Rashi. I'm not going to look at Rashi. I'm going to be the one that translates what this verse says. Rashi is 900 years ago. He's old news. I'm the new kid on the block. Arrogant people increased. Real Torah scholars decreased because the arrogant people don't want to actually read Torah. They want to make money. And it continues, when the number of arrogant people increased, the daughters of Israel began to marry only arrogant people. For our generation sees only on the surface and are easily fooled by appearances. This is not this generation. It says, even the women, who do they look for as husbands? What, they look for the tzaddik? The guy that's in Nicola? No, they look at the guy with the biggest watch. Who's the girl? Say, oh, I want to marry him. Oh, I can't wait to her. The guy with the nicest car. The guy with the big watch that's 17 pounds. I don't know why people need such a big watch. Just put a clock. It's cheaper. <laughs> put an alarm clock. Why do you need such a big watch? <laughs> put an alarm clock on your hand. I don't understand why people need such a big watch. But who she wants to marry? She wants to marry the guy that has a clock on his arm. She wants to wear the guy. She wants to marry the guy that has clothes tighter than hers. You know, the new skinny jeans, the skinny shirts, and skinny this and skinny that. Only problem is the only thing that's not skinny is the guy. The guy's fat. (laughs) Skinny jeans, skinny pants, skinny everything, but the guy's fat. So you see all of his curves and his skinny jeans. Who she wants to marry? She wants to marry him because he has a Lexus or a Beamer or this one or that one and a watch and a clock and a this and a that. That's what she wants to marry. She wants to marry the guy that shows off his wealth, 
that he got from Abba and Ima anyway. She doesn't want to marry the Ben Torah that makes $1,000 a month in the call and studying 12, 15 hours a day. She doesn't want to. It doesn't look good. Well, I'm going to live such a humble life. I need to have at least, a, at least start out with a five-bedroom apartment. At least start out living on the 35th floor. That's what people think these days. I'm not ready to get married until you get a car. Well, you marrying the car, you marry me. If you want to send you the car, you marry that. I'll save myself to get. <laughs> what do I need? People are marrying the wrong people. Why? Because they're looking for the wrong things. They're looking at the watch instead of the eyes. But the master said, one of the sages said, this man who's arrogant, it's not, it says in the Torah that even his family hates him. So how could it be that all the women marry the arrogant man? An arrogant person, even his own family hates him. No one likes an arrogant person, especially another arrogant person because he's taking his light. He's stealing his thunder. <laughs> Confident women. Like, Donald Trump cannot have a vice president that's also Donald Trump. Can't be. Why? Because he'll steal his thunder. He'll steal the attention. Can't be. So he picked a guy that's like meek and waiting and like quiet on the side. It's perfect. So, an arrogant person can't be in a room with another arrogant person. It's impossible. So he says... Arrogant people, even their own family hates them. So how could it be that every daughter of Israel is marrying an arrogant person? It says, initially, the women jump to marry these arrogant people. But ultimately, their husbands become despised by them. Initially, that they want to buy the watch. They want to marry the watch. They want to marry the car. They want to marry the tight clothes with the fat guy. They want to marry the... Uh, strange weird hairdo that they have with three pounds of gel that's what they want to marry initially that's what they want to marry everybody has their hair here and hair here and hair here and hair here and they have earrings here earrings here earrings here the cow looks at him and is like listen I have one but they put it here what do you have so many the bull is like jealous of him he's like hey listen I only got one here one here you have a lot all face is rings you can't even go to a metal detector it's dangerous. Sakarat nefashot. Boy, they marry. They marry these things because they want the, you know, they want the style. He's stylish. He's innovative. He's a modern day. Everybody wants to marry the modern day guy. Six months into it, Kvodarav, I can't stand him. We need a divorce. Why? Because who cares about the modern day? I want a normal human being. That's going to love me. That's going to listen to me. That's going to respect me. That's going to treat me like a human being and not a corpse or a baby factory. That's actually going to buy me flowers with his own money and not just take the neighbor's flowers by you know stealing them <laughs> five minutes before Shabbat. That's going to actually want to hang out with me instead of with his friends at 10 o'clock at night. That wants to build a family with me. That wants to learn Torah with me. That wants to be my BFF, my best friend. Not BFF with his high school buddy still drinking beers every Thursday and Sunday. That's what I want to marry. But she only realizes it after she married the modern guy. 
with the rings and the this and the tattoos and all this balagan that he has. The fat guy with the tight clothes. The fat guy with the tight clothes. <laughs> <laughs> so, here we see that Hashem is telling us very, very clearly when we transgress the Torah, we could only lose. You can't win. It's like fire. It looks very, very pretty. From far, it's pretty. You get close to it. You put your hand in it. It's not pretty anymore. You go against the Torah. Guaranteed loss. Not just in the Olam that no one wants to believe in. Not just in the days of Mashiach where 15 days of darkness are coming. Not just then. But in this world. In this life. In this marriage. In this kids. In these schools. In this country. In your personal life. And this is why David Melech said... God, teach me your laws. Why? Because he knew that Hashem's laws must be good. He's the manufacturer. Of course. He's the manufacturer. He's not going to create you to destroy you. If you want to destroy you, he just built Gehenom. Just built Gehenom for entertainment. Just throw people into Gehenom. Ha ha ha. If he wanted to torture you, he just he just create Gainom. That's it. No Ganadin. No world even. Just Gainom. But obviously he created this world full of perfection, full of flowers and butterflies and trees and all these wonderful things. He could have made all food taste the same, but instead he gave you cookies and he gave you meat and he gave you chicken and he gave you all these wonderful things that you can enjoy food and you can enjoy the scene and you can see colors and you get married and you have love and you have all these kids and wonderful things. He got you to a place that you could actually enjoy. The least you can do is remember him and thank him for it. Did you imagine that we all saw black and white? I imagine that we most of us already see. <laughs> most of us only see black and white. It's just we see the we see the wrong colors is the problem. So the thing is that the sages teach us, Moses teaches us, both Moshe Rabenu and Rambam. Please, don't forget God, because you're going to need Him. Any questions? Baruch Adonai Amen.